So today, um, today the, 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 the passage is Acts chapter 14. So you can turn your Bible there. We're just going to be in that chapter. And the structure of the chapter is pretty simple. Paul and Barnabas, they go to Iconium. They're almost killed there. They leave very quickly. They get to Lystra. Uh, Paul is, is really almost killed there. And they go onward for a little while, and they retrace their steps and go back to Antioch. That's what the chapter is about. But the crux of it, which, which the sermon is essentially based on, is Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 23. And think about what this says. After they've gone through all that, after they're almost killed at Iconium, after Paul is nearly killed in Lystra, and as they're coming back, they circle back quietly, and they strengthen the disciples they made when they first came through, but in each case they were run out of town pretty quickly. So they made new converts, but then they had to leave. And without a lot of, with no organization, not a lot of time for teaching, there were no, you know, set goodbyes, they didn't have the going away party, they had to leave in each time really quickly. So they come back on their way back through. And what do they do? What is the thing? that Paul and Barnabas want these, these brand new Christians who became Christians, got a little bit of instruction, and then were abandoned because they had to flee town. What are the things that Paul and Barnabas want these new Christians to know? And this is a, I think this is a, a, a haunting and, and very interesting passage because it upends so many expectations about what the Christian life is that are floating around out there. So this is what it says in Acts chapter 14, 21 to 23. Uh, Paul of Barnabas proclaimed the good news to the people in Derby and made many disciples. So they've gone, they kept going, but now they're they fully U-turned and they're coming back. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, where they strengthened the disciples and urged them to remain firm in the faith. They told them, and, and here it is, if we are to enter God's kingdom, we must pass through many troubles. They appointed elders for every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed these elders to the Lord in whom they had placed their trust. That's the thing that Paul really wants them to get, because he's about to leave them again. He appoints pastors over their little tiny congregations, the little Christians, and then leaves. But what does he want them to know? He wants them to know that the only way, the old, there is no path that leads to God's kingdom, which is eternity in this context. There's no path that leads there that doesn't mean you go through trouble. You're going to have to go through troubles no matter which path. There is no shortcut. There's no, I'm going to take a left here and go this way, and I'm going to avoid all of that. Any route you take, trouble is on every single one of them. The only way to get to see the kingdom of God to enter it is to go through many troubles, many tribulations, the only way. Everyone is going to be facing trouble, a little bit different depending on who you are. Paul's troubles were different than their troubles, different than your troubles. None of you have been stoned lately, I don't think. But no matter where the trouble, what the trouble is, where does it come from? The trouble comes from Satan. What should we think about these troubles? What does Paul and Barnabas want them to think about their troubles? He wants them to expect them, to anticipate them, to know that they're coming, that it's not if they're going to come, it's when they're going to come, that they're going to be inevitable. So what kind of trouble does Acts chapter 14 show us? What kind of trouble does it show us? What does Acts 14 tell us about Satan's lives in the lives of believers? As we look at Paul and Barnabas, as they go through Acts 14. What tricks does Satan use to hinder them along the way? Go beyond the fruit, he stoned them. But what, what, what stuff does he stir up in the lives of people to get them to the point where they want to kill what them? What, what's the root of these problems? But it's a list from this passage, and it's drawn from the fact that what Paul and Barnabas really want these Christians to understand is that there is no road that doesn't have troubles. There will be troubles if you're a Christian and you're alive. 
there will be troubles. So what kind of troubles do we see in Acts 14 that can help us be on the lookout in our own life? That's what this passage is going to be about. And I, hope it's, uh, I hope it's illuminating for you, it's illuminating for me, and hopefully it'll help us to be on the lookout so we can be more faithful, uh, wiser Christians. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to know you, help us to love you. Help us to be on the lookout for Satan who's anxious to trick us, to deceive us, and help us to always want to cling to your word. Open our eyes so we can behold marvelous things out of your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first thing that Satan does is he blinds us with our own pride. And we see this in the first two verses. All of Barnabas have left Antioch uh, in southern Turkey. They've gone, they've gone down the road or so, about 100 miles to the city of Iconium. And this is what verses 1 and 2 says. The same thing happened in Iconium, getting run out of town. The same thing happened in Iconium, Luke says. Paul and Barnabas entered the Jewish synagogue and spoke as they had before just like they did in Antioch. As a result, a huge number of Jews and Greeks believed. However, the Jews who rejected the faith stirred up the Gentiles, poisoning their minds against the brothers. So they, they arrive in Iconium, they go to the synagogue, they have the same sort of debate as before, maybe using the same passages, Acts chapter 16, Isaiah chapter 55, and bringing in all these reasons to show Jesus is the king. There's scripture that says it, so you all need to, need to believe it. Please believe and know that Jesus has come to bring the good news you've been waiting for. And then huge numbers believe, not just Jews, but, but Gentiles, Greeks, or people who are Jews, people like you and me. All sorts of people believe, but just like before. The Jews who rejected the faith stirred up the Gentiles, poisoning their minds against the brothers. Why do they reject the faith? Because on one level you could say, because they're not saved. Okay, but why? What, what, what does Satan use to make them hear what Paul's saying and then say, no? What does Satan use to work and play on what is the best thing what is the the most the easiest thing satan can use to turn us against truth when we hear it in antioch in acts 13:45 we see what what the what the real deal was there in acts chapter 13:45 we read um, so tons of people are coming to hear Paul and Barnabas, but in Acts 13.45 we read, When the Jews saw the crowds, they were overcome with jealousy. They argued against what Paul was saying by slandering him. I think that's a very good clue as to what happened here, because he said the same thing happened here. It's the same sort of, it's sort of, it's the same song, but it's a different day. I think you have jealousy going on. I think you have certain numbers of Jews in leadership positions in the community who are very angry at these guys for coming in and trying to explain that Jesus is the Messiah. I think they're jealous. I think they're angry. They've rejected the faith, and then that they make it their mission to then go and poison everybody against the truth. This jealousy, if you're jealous, if you think that you are right about something, and then when someone comes and it suggests that maybe you, that, that there, there's more than you realized, or that there's new implications that are present, or something, if you're a very prideful person, your tendency is to not listen, but to get very angry. And you've seen that just in places where you work. Think of someone you've worked for who never wants to admit that she's wrong, or who gets really angry and very defensive and will never admit the very possibility that she could be incorrect about something and then becomes this absurd theater where they pretend like they, 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 they like pretend that that they're not wrong when everyone knows that they are wrong and it becomes petty and stupid and it's this absurd thing but jealousy can really really blind us to ignoring the truth just because we're angry just because we feel that just because we don't want to listen to what someone says because of who they are, because of how they say it. Satan is anxious to use our, to use our, our pride against us. It's what happened in Antioch where they just were. And Luke says the same thing is happening here. 
I believe that some of the Jewish people are jealous and they're very angry. And it's this idea that I don't need to listen to anybody. I don't have to, I can't learn anything from anybody. I know everything and they're just wrong. That's why the prophets, when God sent prophets, they're almost always rejected. They're hated, they're rejected. Jeremiah is in prison in a pit for who knows how long because people do not want to listen to the truth. Sometimes this kind of thinking just stunts your Christian maturity. It sort of, sort of ghettoizes you into this stagnant pond. You know, when there's like a, a huge amount of rain and then the rain starts drying up and then you have these ponds on the side of the road, these little puddles that become stagnant, they become oily with all the oil and fuel that drained off from the road and everything. That can become you, it can become me if we wall ourselves off from ever thinking that we, have, that we have no more to learn. We have no more to learn about God. God has nothing more to show us because we already know everything. Because our pastor already told us everything and that's good enough for me. Because if we think that, whenever we think that we've, we've gotten to the point where we have no more to learn, even if we never say it, we're not willing to learn for God to teach us or for us to be taught by anybody. Then we become like those stagnant pools, puddles on the side of the road with the oil slick in them. All because we think we're the ones who have it all figured out. And other times, like here, it can damn your soul because that's what these people are doing. They're, they're, poisoning, they're poisoning people against God. And it's all because of pride. This is really about what attitude do you have what attitude do you have, do we have, when we come before God? Do we have the attitude the Bereans have in Acts chapter 17, where they listened to Paul, and then they searched the scriptures to see if this was true? They said, okay, I'm, I'm listening, and I will go to the scripture, and then if it's there, then I'll believe you. But if it's not there, I, I won't believe you. A, a willingness to listen, not a reflexive, go away. A willingness to say, okay, I will listen to your argument. What about these guys? Some of them, they don't have that attitude at all. Do you come to the word saying, like Psalm 119 verse 18 says, open my eyes so I can examine the wonders of your instruction? Or do you come to God's word with, I know what it says, I already know everything, there's nothing here for me, or do you, you might not say that out loud, but is that your internal attitude? I know what this says, I know what this is about, I know what Sunday morning is, I'm good. Or do you come saying, God, teach me today through the songs, through the prayers, through God's word. Teach me and help me, challenge me, convict me of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What's our attitude? So contrast the people who reject the faith because of jealousy, like in Antioch and probably here, with the Bereans who searched the scriptures to see if what they said was true. Beware that Satan doesn't blind you with your own pride. The second thing, which is very closely related to the first, I've already mentioned it, and it follows on the heels of it. The second thing that Satan does is he then uses you to poison others. These people rejected the faith, and it says they then went about, stirred up the Gentiles, poisoning their minds against the brothers. Not only do they not believe, they have to convince everyone, they have to get everyone else on their side and poison everyone's minds against the truth, which is even worse because they're poisoning people against God. It reminds me of what Gamaliel said. Even though he was a Pharisee, he was one of Paul's teachers, and I don't, just because, just, just because you, you might not be a believer, it doesn't mean that you're stupid. I hope we all get that. Gamaliel was very clever. And after all this heated controversy of the, the trying to arrest Peter and, the, and John every time they show their face, Gamaliel's like, guys, I, I think we just need to let this play out. If God's with them, then there's nothing we can do to stop it. But if, if, uh, and, and then we'll be in a position of, of fighting against God. And if he's not, then we'll prevail. And Gamaliel was basically saying, I think we need to hit the brakes here and just um, um, let's be cautious here. We don't want to be fighting against God in this crazy zeal that some of you have got going on. But this is what's going on here. There's a poisoning. They're going around poisoning everyone. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. That's their constant mantra. 
Nevertheless, Paul and Barnabas stayed there for quite some time, confidently speaking about the Lord. And the Lord confirmed the word about his grace by the signs and wonders he enabled them to perform. So they're preaching and then doing miracles to prove what they're saying is true. We are from God. Jesus is the Messiah. Watch this. And then the people who watch it are supposed to say, wow, the only way someone can do that is if God is with him. Let me connect some dots in my mind here. What does this mean? Maybe I should listen to them. They don't care. They don't care. Paul isn't against having a discussion. That's what he's been trying to do. But these people don't care. They're not interested. They see themselves as righteous protectors, gatekeepers fighting against error. Even when God accredits what they say by miracles, they don't care. No one cares. Why does this happen? Because you're prideful. That's number one. You're prideful. You don't want to admit you could be wrong. You don't want to admit you could learn. And it happens when the gatekeepers that we trust are afflicted by the same thing. So we believe them when they say, don't read what that person writes. Don't listen to what that person says. That person's dangerous. Stay away. Stay away from that person. The problem is sometimes someone is dangerous and sometimes they're not. How do you tell when you're, how do you tell if you're dispensing, if you're, if you're one of these people who have people who look up to you as a spiritual, as a, as a committed Christian and you have influence with people, how do you know if you're going to be spreading poison or if you're spreading wisdom? How do you know which one you're doing? How do you know if you say, I, think, I, I don't think we should listen to this person. How do you know if you're not just being rude or if you're actually dispensing truth? Because there are people you don't want to listen to. Joel Osteen, don't, please don't listen to Joel Osteen. Okay, don't do that. Um, so how do you know? There's a, few, there's a few bits of wisdom, I think, here. Be in community. We get really weird when we're all alone. If you've ever worked a job overnight, um, I remember when I was uh, in seminary, for part of the time, I, I was out of the Navy, but I had a job working all night in a, in a Navy operations center. And I would do all my, all my reading in this from you know, 6 at night to 6 in the morning. And I would do all my reading and then and do schoolwork. And I came up with some really, have you ever come up with this idea that sounds amazing, but then the next morning you're like, what on the earth was I thinking about? It's like, what was wrong with me? It made perfect sense. But now, when it's the morning, you're like, I'm glad I didn't tell anyone about that. Um, so how do you know, how do you know when, when you're going off the deep end with something? Well, you should be in community with other Christians because we get weird when we're alone. We do weird things. We get weird ideas. So I think you should seek, seek counsel with other Christians, which is why you should be part of a community of, of Christians whom you can talk to. Uh, the other thing you can do to make sure you're to, to know whether you're dispensing wisdom or poison so you're not falling into this trap is to talk to your pastors, committed Christians in your life, in your faith community, in your church about the issue and have discussions from the scripture. Now, you can always tell if someone's going off of just culture or the Bible because they get really defensive and don't like, and they give you Bible verses that really have nothing to do with what the issue actually is. Like if you talk to someone who thinks tattoos are evil, if you say, why are tattoos evil? They'll go to a verse probably from the early chapters of Deuteronomy that talks about not making cutting marks on your skin. And they'll say, see, that's why. And you'll say, those cutting marks that Deuteronomy spoke about were pagan practices that showed you worshiped Baal and other Canaanite deities. It has nothing to do with you getting a tattoo with a heart with your girlfriend's name on it. Like, it's totally different. And then if you say that, and they get angry and defensive, and they don't, they, there's no real desire to talk. They threw, out the, they threw out the proof text, and you just have to accept it. You can tell, we're not really talking about Scripture. We're talking about personal preference that's trying to find justification from Scripture. And you've had, probably had conversations like that before with people. If someone gets angry and defensive and they, don't, and they really can't or won't engage the Bible with, with the thing that they're trying to push, that they want you to help them push, then it's a red flag that I don't think God is behind this. I think our persons, a personal preference might be behind this. And we're all guilty of it, which is why we shouldn't be alone. We should be in community with one another. So when it comes to Jesus as the Messiah, 
That's what these people should have done. Jesus can't be the Messiah. Why? He said he's God's son. Well, Psalm chapter 2, God says that he's going to install his son next to him in eternity. Well, it can't be this guy, though. Why? Because he died. Isaiah 53 says he's going to die. Well, uh, uh, it can't be him. He wasn't from Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. Oh, well, ah, uh, you know, and you could just go on and on, but there's no willingness to search the scriptures. It's just rejection. And then I will then, I'll jump on the bandwagon and I'll just convince everyone else to reject it too. And no one decides to actually look to see what the scriptures have to say. When there's an unwillingness to engage the scriptures, you're probably uh, buying into poison instead of actual truth. Beware that Satan isn't using you to poison other Christians with whom you have influence. Instead of searching the scriptures like the Bereans, pride made these people, this group, reject the truth and then poison other people against the truth. They probably thought they were doing a good thing by saying, don't listen to them, don't listen to them, but they weren't. The third thing that we see is that Satan... These sort of follow on one another, but they don't always have to. Satan can make us hate people, even to the point of death. The people of the city were divided because there's been this poisoning going on. Some siding with the Jews, others with the Lord's messengers. Then some Gentiles and Jews, including their leaders, hatched a plot to mistreat and stone Paul and Barnabas. When they learned of it, these two messengers fled to the Laodicean uh, Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby and the surrounding area where they continued to proclaim the good news. So there is nothing nastier on earth than a, um, than a religious person who thinks he has God on his side. I really believe that. I don't think there's a nastier kind of person on earth than a religious person who is convinced that God is on his side and has an attitude about it. Some Christians use this as a blank check for rudeness, for slander, for evil. And it can even go, it can go, just, it can go beyond character assassination to real assassination, which is, what the, which is what the plot is here. Real assassination. And all of us can fall into these, can fall into these plots too. Viewing people who disagree with us so much, hating people who disagree with us so much, that we, we, we literally begin hating them. We think about politics. We think about vaccines. We think about whatever topic you want to bring up. We're encouraged to disagree with people so much that we can begin actually hating them. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't, I've never hatched a plot to stone anybody, so everything must be fine. But Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, when he spoke about the law, he brought out its real intent by saying, by saying that hatred is essentially the same thing as murder because you, you, you despise the person in your heart. You might not actually uh, pick up a weapon or pick up a stone to kill him, but in your heart, you despise the person, you hate the person. And Jesus said that's essentially the same thing as murder. And Paul got very angry at people. Paul had reason to be angry at people, but Paul never tried to kill anybody. His method was to walk away and leave it to the Lord, like Alexander the coppersmith. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did a lot of awful things to me. And he said, I pray that the Lord puts it to his account. He's going to leave it with the Lord. He doesn't hold on to bitterness. He didn't plot to kill Alexander. Perhaps it did occur to him, but he didn't do anything about it. He left, decided to leave it with the Lord. Satan wants us to hate our enemies so much that we could even justify killing them. And Christians have fallen victim to this all the time. Saul went and killed people in the name of Christ because he's a crusading, righteous defender of the truth. And so he could justify killing people. And Christians for... Thousands of years have done this, have, have used, hundreds of years, have, have used their religious convictions as a pretext to kill people. And we could also use it in a more mundane way as a pretext to just really hate people. If someone doesn't agree with us, we hate them. And that's all over the place on social media, even from the most popular and well-beloved pastors who some of us might follow or read, whose books are in our library. 
an intense, nasty, vicious sort of hatred that oozes out of every pore and that's unbecoming of Christ. And none of these, none of these, these pastors who I'm thinking of, whom I won't mention, would ever pick up a weapon or would never want to kill anybody. But in their heart, they hate their opponents so much. And it's not just that they don't like people who don't believe the gospel. They don't like people who aren't exactly the same as them. And then they go around warning everyone against the people as though there's some satanic force. And behind it, you can tell, is just this visceral hate. Terrible hatred. They can go so far in the right circumstances, the right combination, can go so far as to even hatching plots to kill in the name of God. That's what the Sanhedrin did to Jesus. Satan can make you hate people, even to the point of death, and think that God is happy with you. So don't think that it can't happen to you, because it's happened to many people who claim to love God throughout the centuries. So Paul and Barnabas leave Lystra very quickly. Gone. It's time to hit the road. But they will be back. They're still determined to tell the good news, so they go on down, they go on down the road to Lystra. Which gets to our fourth point. Satan tricks you to reshape the gospel to fit your life instead of the other way around. In Lystra, there was a certain man who lacked strength in his legs. He'd been crippled since birth and had never walked. Sitting there, he heard Paul speaking. So Paul's speaking the gospel in Lystra, and he's listening. Paul stared at him and saw that he believed he could be healed. Raising his voice, Paul said, Stand up straight on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk. This is almost an exact parallel from the crippled Jewish guy at the temple in, in Acts chapter 3. But now we have a crippled uh, Gentile guy in a pagan city of Lystra. And he's healed too. Seeing what Paul had done, the crowd shouted in the Lyconian language, so Paul can't understand them. They're speaking a different language, a Lyconian language. The gods have taken human form and have come down to visit us. Because it's a miracle. And these people are pagans. They're not Jewish people with Jewish background. They see what happens. They know it's divine, but they immediately attribute it to their own religious, um, their own, they color it with their own religious understanding. The gods have taken human form. These guys are gods, and here they are visiting us. They referred to Barnabas as Zeus and to Paul as Hermes, since Paul was the main speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was located just outside the city, brought bowls and reeds to the city gates. Along with the crowds, he wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So this is the, probably the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous temptations is they, they hear, they're literally hearing Paul explain the gospel. I don't know how far he got, but he got far enough that people have believed because when he comes back, there are believers in the city because of what he was preaching. So he got enough out to explain the gospel. Maybe this wasn't the only time he spoke there. This is just the time that Luke decided to highlight as the climactic event. But Paul has been speaking the gospel, which is there's one God... His name's Yahweh, his eternal son Jesus came here, died for our sins, rose from the grave, was perfect for us. He ascended into heaven. He's going to come back and judge the living and the dead. You need to repent and believe in him. All of this stuff. And yet as soon as this miracle happened, they throw away everything Paul just said and just slot the miracle into their own pagan understanding of religion and then start trying to give worship and homage to Paul and to Barnabas. What are they doing? What is, how is Satan tricking them? What is Satan doing? He's not telling them the miracle didn't exist. Satan's like, oh, look at that, you see? That slides right in here with everything you've believed since you were a kid. The gods have come down to visit you. Forget about all the stuff he's been talking about, about how there's only one God, and Jesus is the his eternal son, and you need to believe in this. Forget all that. Just, just, so just just duct tape it to everything else you already believed and just, just attribute it to that. The gods have come down in human form. This, why this is so dangerous is Satan does not want us. Satan doesn't want the gospel to change us and change our life. He wants us to take the gospel 
and just slot it right in as an appendage to the way we already think and already live our life. He doesn't want the gospel to change us. He wants us to keep doing everything we were doing and then just sort of fit Jesus in somewhere else underneath all the, underneath the rest of the pile, which is what these guys are doing. He wants us to hear the gospel, even explained by someone as eloquent as Paul. And he wants people just to, just, they, he just wants them to, to go. He just wants the whole message, the whole content, just to evaporate into mist and to slot the gospel into everything else you already believe and understand about life. The problem is the gospel, this is why this is so tricky, the gospel is not an accessory that you just add to your life. It's a commitment to a, to a story that's supposed to change your life. If the gospel doesn't change your life and rearrange your heart and mind away from yourself and change your, your attitudes and your pursuits toward wanting to do what God wants, then you don't have the gospel. Jesus has come to rescue us from Satan and to change our hearts and minds so we can be the people that God made us to be, following his law, his morals, his pattern, loving the one God instead of loving ourselves, which is what Satan has wanted us to do, to be in relationship with the God who created us instead of in relationship to the evil angel who rebelled against God. And if this, this transformation doesn't change our heart and change our life away from ourselves to go a different direction toward the God who rescued us, then there's something wrong. It's not an accessory on our life. It's a transforming potion that changes our life from the inside out. And if the gospel is just an appendage that's tacked onto your life like this, then Satan still has you in his clutches. Christianity cuts your old life apart because it starts to remake you in the image of the one who saved you, Jesus' image. It doesn't accommodate you to, your, to the person you used to be. You've been changed. You've been born again. You've come to life. And you're walking away from the old you because now you're a new you. And this problem has always existed. The challenge of how do I be a faithful Christian in a culture that wants me to be totally different than what God says I should be. Back in this day, it was the, the challenge to just make Yahweh just another God among many that you worship. You can worship Yahweh, that's fine. Just add him to the mix. There's more room in the mixing bowl. Just stir him around in there and everything will be fine. Just add him to the mix, a little more seasoning. In 2022, sexual preferences are the thing that the big trick that Satan is using to do the same thing in a different guise, where feelings become your identity. What you feel inside becomes absolute truth. What you feel inside about sexual preferences becomes absolute dogma. And so what's truth is not God's revelation. What becomes true is what I feel inside. And so there's a there's a there's a reluctance to want to suppress what we feel and embrace what God wants us to be. God's job becomes to affirm us, not to change us. And there have always been, just as today, there have always been false teachers who are eager to assure you that Jesus is just a bobblehead that you can put on your dashboard. You see him and he bobs around and he's pleasant and amusing instead of Jesus being a king who will change you from the inside out if you pledge yourself to him. So what happens here in our passage? They ignore what Paul says. He's been preaching. They just, some believe, but many just, whew, it's gone. They ignore what Paul says. They accommodate the miracle. They know it's a miracle, but instead of saying, maybe that means this guy has something to say here, they just Ignore what he has to say and just slot the miracle right into their existing false belief system and then just go full speed ahead and try and make sacrifices to these men as though they're gods. But even then, that's a surface level thing. What's really going on here that makes them do that? What made them not listen to Paul and to do what they did? Probably, well not probably, Satan is what happened. He's come along, and he's snatched away the gospel seed that's been tossed along the path there. 
He's taken it away, and he's tricked them, and they're just accommodating the miracle to what they already think and believe and ignoring everything Paul said. Beware that Satan doesn't trick you into reshaping the gospel to fit your life, because it's supposed to be the other way around. The gospel changes you, it makes you spiritually alive, and makes you want to walk away from the person you used to be when you belonged to Satan and walk toward and more fully become the person Christ has made you by saving you. I'll be talking more in June. Uh, June is Pride Month. I'll be talking in June about sexual ethics and some other things along those lines, so you'll have to wait for that uh, to talk more about it. But the gospel is not God's plan to just affirm us as we are. It's God's plan to rescue us from Satan, to change us to be the people that God made us to be. It's two totally different things. The fifth thing that Satan does is he blinds us to God's existence in everyday life. The passage goes on and says, When the Lord's messengers, Barnabas and Paul, found out about this, they tore their clothes in protest and rushed out into the crowd. People, what are you doing? We're humans too, just like you. We are proclaiming the good news to you. Turn to the living God and away from such worthless things. He made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In the past, he permitted every nation to go its own way. Nevertheless, he hasn't left himself without witness. He's blessed you by giving you rain from above, as well as seasonal harvests, and satisfying you with food and happiness. Paul goes around saying, guys, what do you mean the gods have come down to earth? That's not true. Paul's basically, he basically goes on to say, okay, I've been giving you all this detailed stuff. Just forget about that. Just look at nature and you can see that God exists and that he's, he's shown himself to you by, in, in, by everything that's around you that's been designed. Can't you see that? Can't you see that these 800 gods you worship, that that's not the answer. Those are worthless things. Turn from those things. He's pointing out, just look at the world, and it points all to God. There, is a, um, there was a, uh, a man in the early, uh, very early 19th century called William Paley. He wrote a book called Natural Theology, which is a real riveting title. But in the book, he started off the book, it's a famous book, and it's a book that argues we can know that God exists because of the design we see in the universe. And it was written in 1804, so the, the, the um, uh, illustrations, they still work. He says, he starts off by saying, you know, if, if I'm walking in a field and I trip on something and I look and there's a rock, it's just a, this black rock, and I wonder, well, how long has this rock been there? He says, well, it could be for forever, who knows, it's just a stupid rock. He says, but then if I keep going on and I trip over something else and I look and I see a pocket watch. He says, I pick up the pocket watch and I say, how long has this watch been here and how did it get here? He said, well, that's a totally different thing than the rock because he looks at the watch and he sees it has this little, these little thing, this thing to wind it. He can open up the watch. He sees the hand, you know, moving around in synchronous, the hour hand, the minute hand. He sees it's in a protective case. There's glass on the inside underneath the protective case. There's a spring that makes the case go up. And, you know, this is someone designed this watch. This thing doesn't just appear. It's not a rock. Someone had to make this, someone had to plan it, someone had to put it together in just the right way so there would be a watch that I can look at and see, and I can look and I can wind it and I can tell the time. And in 1804, that's a pretty good illustration. It still works now, but now we can just can go infinitely more uh, with illustrations. But the point is, we see things that are made. God's there. Why don't you just listen? Why don't you look? Why don't you listen? Why don't you see? Why don't you ask questions about that? What Paul is saying is that we look at the world and how it's been made for a fit purpose, and it's supposed to make us wonder, it's supposed to implant this, this unconscious God-must-exist knowledge on our consciences, on our hearts, on our minds, to make us seek and to search and to wonder, to find out about the God who made all of this. But what does Satan do? He doesn't want us to see any of it. He just wants to blind us forever, blind us all. He wants a veil to be over our hearts and minds. 
And Paul and Barnabas, they don't speak this Lyconian language, but when they see what's about to happen, they start connecting the dots and they're they're furious. They're like, haven't you been listening to anything I'm saying? If you don't want to listen to what I'm saying about Jesus and prophecies, just look outside. What do you, who do you think made all of this? He hasn't left himself without a witness. He blesses you. He gives you harvest every year. He gives you rain. He, he satisfies you with food. He gives you... Where did all this come from? Shouldn't that make you wonder, guys? Even with these words, they barely kept the crowds from sacrificing to them. What Satan wants to do is he seeks to blind us from evidence for God. Even obvious evidence like this. You can't become a Christian by looking outside and saying, wow, someone had to make this, so God must exist. That's not enough to make you a Christian, but it's enough to, it's God sort of pushing you on the path to asking questions. And then he's going to bring Christians into your life and, and show you the way. He's pointing. These are like arrows saying, keep going this way. Keep getting warmer, getting warmer. If you're not a Christian and your loved one is not a Christian, the only way people are going to come, the only way they'll come to faith is if God removes this veil, this satanic force field from their heart and mind. So the light of the gospel will shine in. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 is about. The enemy doesn't want the light of the gospel to shine in. And if you know the enemy's tactics, then you can account for it. Paul is asking them, guys, look, do you think this world made itself? People are watching me right now through a camera that's sitting behind you. Did the camera make itself? Someone had to make the camera, which means there's a designer behind it. What about this world? How did this world get here? Even though this world is very messed up, it's clearly been designed by someone who really knows what he's doing. What does that mean? Did your car make itself or did someone have to make it? What about the Apollo 11 moon mission? Did they just find themselves there on the moon? Or did someone, a whole bunch of people, have to design some very complicated stuff to get people to the moon? Paul's saying that means God showing himself in everything you see in the world, in nature. Because how did it get here? And Paul's asking them, maybe that means you have an obligation to seek out this designer, the living God who hasn't left himself without witness, but has left his fingerprints everywhere so you can see it. If you're not a Christian, know that Satan is actively blinding you to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel. He doesn't want you to see that God exists, even in innocuous ways by looking at the sunrise and the sunset and seeing how the world's designed. We recognize this cheap mouse was designed. I got it for $7.99 on Amazon, but it was clearly designed by someone, and we can all see that, but we look at the world and we don't seem to connect dots that someone must have made this world too. If this mouse has been made, someone made this world too. And what does that mean? Maybe I should seek him out. But Satan doesn't want these people to see that. He blinded them by slotting the miracle into their existing belief system. And now, he, Paul's pointing out to them, don't you just see the world around you? God is there. And even with all those words, he barely kept them from sacrificing to him and Barnabas as though they were gods. And the last thing which may be the most insidious one of all, is Satan wants you to think that the Christian life is easy. He wants you to think that God is your cosmic butler, whose job is to serve you to make your life better. That's what Satan wants you to think about God. This isn't explicitly stated, but it's implied by what Paul said to them in the passage I read at the beginning of the sermon. Jews from Antioch and Iconium arrived and won the crowds over. So these, are the, these guys have been following them. Like, remember I talked about this pathological hatred? Um, they left Iconium, and they followed them. Guys from Antioch followed them to Iconium, and then followed them to Lystra. So this is like some next-level hatred going on here. They hate Paul and Barnabas. They're following them everywhere, trying to stir up trouble for them. Hell hath no fury like a religious person who thinks God is on his side. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. They finally got him. Supposing he was dead, 
When the disciples surrounded him, he got up and entered the city again. The following day, he left with Barnabas for Derby, which is probably a wise move. I think this is a miraculous um, recovery. If you're stoned by an angry mob, you're not going to really be getting up to go outside anytime soon. But Paul does. He goes back into the city. I don't think he went back in to say, ha ha, catch me if you can. I'm the gingerbread man. I think he sort of went back to show himself to the disciples he'd made and then quietly left town. He'd won the, they, they'd won the crowds over to what? To murder. Think, what is the fruit of the crusade that you're following? If you're following after teachers who encourage you to not like other Christians or to be eternally suspicious, or what is, this, what if, what is the fruit of the crusade that you're following? Because it can get to the point where you can step back and say, what on earth is wrong with me? How did these people get to the point where they're literally following Paul all over southern Turkey just so they can kill him? I'm sure God's very happy. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 talks about people whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron, and I think this is what he's talking about. They're so, they're so burnt over, they can't even feel anything anymore. Their conscience will, there's no room for, for anything else but hatred. Paul and Barnabas proclaimed the good news to the people in Derby and made many disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, where they strengthened the disciples and urged them to remain firm in the faith they told them, if we are to enter God's kingdom, we must pass through many troubles. These are people who were left with nothing. They had no organization. They had no leaders. They had only a tiny bit of instruction, and Paul and Barnabas had to leave town, and they're left there with all of these doubts. Who is this God they were preaching? If God's so powerful, why do you let them get run out of town? What are we supposed to do now? Why am I facing all this pressure from my family, from my friends, from my job? What's that mean for me? Maybe this whole thing's a big mistake. Maybe it's stupid. If God's real, why would he let me go through all this trouble? What am I supposed to do about this? So Paul and Barnabas, as they come, they come back on purpose, knowing it's very dangerous, but they want to give advice to these new Christians. And what is the advice? The advice is there is no road to the kingdom of God that doesn't have many troubles all over it. He's telling them that that's the way it's going to be. But Satan's goal is to make them stay discouraged and angry so that when they see that the Christian life isn't all hugs and hearts, they get upset and they walk away. That's what Satan wants. He wants you to think that God is your cosmic butler. So when it turns out he's not a very good butler because your life isn't perfect, he wants you to get angry. He wants you to walk away. He wants you to say, well, forget this. It's not doing anything for me. Paul, therefore, goes back to tell them, listen, service to Christ is not a consumer thing where you order in the drive-thru and Jesus is at the window to hand you your Big Mac and fries. Service to Christ is where you serve him. You are his servant. But Satan doesn't want you to think that. He wants you to flip it to where God, Jesus is your servant. As soon as you figure out that Christian life isn't a whole parade of hearts and hugs, you're going to get angry and leave if you think God is your cosmic butler. And so that's why Paul makes sure to tell them this when he comes back. That's their troubles. What are our troubles in the Christian life? Probably normal, mundane, real troubles that we wouldn't want to tell everyone about, but that are very difficult and frustrating anyway, normal troubles that come from being a Christian alive and a faithful believer all at once. Think broader than just overt persecution from Satan. We've seen some things this morning. Satan is constantly trying to trick us, to discourage us, to make us not read our Bibles, to make us not want to share the gospel, to make us think only the pastor needs to share the gospel, to make us think that the sins we're engaged in are fine, constantly harassing us and discouraging us from being the kinds of Christians we're supposed to be. Marriage problems, family problems, personal problems. Where do you think these problems come from? They come from us because we're not great people, but ultimately they come from Satan who's constantly trying to trick us and push us and fool us and to influence us. To a Christian, Satan is like that toxic relationship you kicked to the, tur to the curb a really, really long time ago. The toxic stalker boyfriend. 
who you thought you were free of a long time ago. But he keeps calling you, he keeps texting you, he keeps messaging you, he keeps manipulating, keeps meddling, keeps pushing buttons, stirring up drama, dredging up sad memories, bitter memories, still tempting you to be the person you used to be, even though you don't want to be that anymore, still dangerous, still trying to ruin you, whispering to you that God doesn't care, he doesn't know. So Paul tells them that no, this is the way life is going to be. Constant battle, struggle, the kingdom of God, you'll only get there through many tribulations. And as long as you love God, Satan will attack you and make your life difficult in dozens of small and large ways, many times operating through second and third parties, and you don't even know he's the one ultimately behind it. Beware that you, that we don't start thinking that God is a cosmic butler whose job is to serve us when we ring our bell and ask for something. The truth is, the only way any of us will get to the finish line, to God's kingdom, is if we pass through, successfully through, many troubles, large and small. But God will be there to help us through these things. That's what Paul that's the most fundamental thing about the Christian life Paul wanted these people to understand, which is why instead of just heading for home, he pulled a U-turn and swung back so he can tell the folks in Iconium and Lystra this important truth because he didn't have time to tell them very much before he was run out of town. Paul could have lied to us about, being, about what being a Christian means, but he didn't. He didn't. What should we do? The Bible is God's witness. It's the witness God uses to point us to him. We read the Bible, and then the Bible says, look over there at God. I think the most important thing we could do so that these six things aren't our reality is to read the scripture and pray what Psalm 119 says and have the inner attitude, the heart disposition of open my eyes so I can examine the wonders of the wonders of your instruction. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your salvation. Help us to be wise as we think about our lives and what influences us. Help us to always want you to influence us through your word. Please be with us and give us wisdom to make sure that Satan is not tricking us and we stick close to you. Help us to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.